Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Serving the Rogue Valley from Central Point, Oregon. We are a multi-generational family. Equipping believers to be adopted in, growing up, and reaching out through the gospel. Family, I, I want to keep reminding you that, that Mark is a unique book of the four Gospels. Mark has the idea written within it that they are writing to the, to the very city of Rome. They're writing to believers who need to be encouraged. They're writing to people who ultimately will read the book and respond to the great precious truth of the good news coming from Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And father and family, they, they write it to Rome, where the, the number one religion is Caesar worship. And starting with Julius Caesar, and now coming all the way to Nero, every time a Caesar dies, he will be added to the pantheon of Caesars. And Caesars will be deified. And right now in, in the world, Caesar worship is the number one religious system. And so, this is a contest. The Caesar of the world declares good news. But the one who died on the authority of the statement of Rome, Jesus Christ, first on the cross, then to be resurrected in mighty glory, also declares a good news. And we saw that in verse 1. Next week we'll finish it off as he declares good news again, that the kingdom of God is now here, and we will look at the kingdom of God next week. What it is, how long it lasts, its authority, and who ultimately is the leader of it. And he says now that it's here, this is good news. Repent and believe. And so as we see these two verses, verse 1 and verse 15, bookends, we see the declaration of the might of God here. And it's important that you and I understand, if we're to grasp the full meaning of the book, we're going to see from verse 16 on as if as if God on high is systematically showing you His control over all of the world, whether it's in teaching or in His action. And we will see Him then end the book in resurrected glory and ultimately at the right hand of the Father. And so family, we build on this good news. We build on this hope. And so it's imperative for you and me not to not to leave church as if we've just watched, just read, just seen whatever thing that disappoints us. We are different people. We are hopeful people. And forgive me, we have a lot more to look forward to than three pregnant killer whales <laughs> off the coast of Washington. Family, in the early 40s B.C., Julius Caesar had been fighting the Gauls. As, as, 
he tried to make political peace with the people of Rome, uh, it grew more and more of an impasse. He takes a small army of people, and he comes now to the very borders of Italy, and he stops on the river Rubicon. And there debates, because the moment he crosses the Rubicon, and he enters Italy with a standing army, he is in treasonous action against Rome. And after a night of debate, he crosses the Rubicon. And unbelievable to history, his enemies now scatter. And he enters into Rome to become the dictator Caesar that we all know today as Julius Caesar. The idea of crossing the Rubicon has become an English colloquialism to no turning back. So if you ever hear that in, in, in the English world today and you debate what it means, there's no turning back. Jesus Christ crossed the Rubicon with the baptism that He will have in the hands of John the Baptist. It's that significant, it's that important that we understand that essentially the gospel both begins and I will suggest to you virtually ends by the time we look at the baptism and the temptation. I believe these to be far more significant than we're often told. And as we see them, I want you to see how important they are. Jesus Christ's confidence, by the time you recognize verse 15 of next week, is such that there's really nothing in His mind that says you already can appreciate all of the offerings of the cross of salvation. You already can appreciate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You already can appreciate the reality of Him being at the right hand of the Father and ultimately the mediator between God and man. You can appreciate all of those things by the time you finish the baptism and the temptation. For Jesus Christ, they're a standing reality. I want you to see this inaugural event of Jesus' public ministry, His baptism. It tells us not what Jesus does, but what God does to Him. So I want you to notice as we begin this morning, we're going to look at the commissioning of the Savior. I want you to take your Bibles and, and come, if you will, to Mark chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 9 through 11 first. And if you would... Uh, though I want you to be with us as we read the text on the screen, keep your Bibles in your lap. Uh, you may want to come back to them because you have questions throughout the week, and you've already had an awareness of, oh yeah, this is where Pete was talking. Oh yeah, this is, this is the spot. And you then can dialogue, you can argue uh, within a family, you can go through the questions that, that we've identified as important this week. Join with me as we read here in Mark Verse 9, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. 
And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. So family, we have Jesus Christ crossing the Rubicon. Jesus is accepting not only baptism, but a baptism of repentance. Now, it's, it's vital this morning that you put on your thinking cap. All right? Don't just go through the motions on your way to the NFL afternoon. So are you ready? Why would Jesus Christ need a baptism of repentance when He's done nothing wrong? Why would He go through the experience being the perfect Son of Man when He has not been guilty of a single sin? It's imperative that you and I understand that at this moment, Jesus Christ is completely siding with you and I. He identifies Himself with mankind. And this is very, very important. As a man, He is putting Himself in our corner. He is taking responsibility of the authority of God upon Himself. And so he is, he is essentially taking now himself, I will be the advocate. I will be the substitute. I will be the sole identifier of all of the sins of mankind. I will take it upon myself. And so he enters the waters of baptism. Matthew records... That John, or that John realizes who Jesus is. And he pleads to be baptized by Jesus. And I encourage you to go back some time and, and read that. He recognizes as he stands before Jesus, and we don't know what triggered the conclusion that as Jesus entered, he already had an understanding of who Jesus was. But in that moment, not merely because they are related to one another, but John intrinsically knows and recognizes his own sinfulness before the Son of God and says, I, I need to be baptized by you. And Matthew will tell us that Jesus says this, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all the righteousness. Or fulfill all righteousness. Family, I don't know what that phrase means. But to the overall benefit of our righteousness upon us, it has to include these elements. And these are the elements that we should get excited about in the process of baptism. First, He is our substitute. 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, verse 21 is a verse that we often come to as I reflect on the years of preaching. It is a verse that systematically shows up. So I believe it to be important. But let me remind you again, He who knew no sin became sin so we could become the righteousness of God. So the moment when he says he is here to fulfill righteousness, 
He is declaring himself to be our substitute. Secondly, he brings an end to the law. And I I can't express to you again how important that is. Without Jesus, do you realize how horrifically hopeless we are? You and I might be worried about the world events. It is nothing in the comparison to the hopelessness that we would be without Jesus Christ. We would be under the demands of the law. Think it through. The Bible tells us that one breach, one mistake, one act of sin on any of the Ten Commandments at any moment in our life makes us unable to see the Father. So there is no chance for heaven. Moralism will get us nowhere. 51% is insufficient. One breach, one mistake, one sin, and our eternity is hell itself. Jesus Christ breaks that power. He breaks that authority. So Romans chapter 10 verse 4 can say it this way. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ fulfilled the law by perfect obedience. Hebrews chapter 9 would tell us that the blood of Christ purifies our conscience to serve the living God. We have no more worry. I want you to notice next, it satisfies God's anger against us. We we know that because of one word, and that word is a mouthful. You ready? Propitiation. Even to this day, having learned it in seminary, there is not a time that I use it uh, preaching that I don't first look up and remind myself of the definition, even myself. And again, I'm laughing because Spencer is nodding in absolute agreement with me this morning. It is not a word that falls off your lips easy. It is not a word that buries itself by definition into your head. But it is vital. Family, essentially, it reminds us that God is holy. His anger and His justice burn against sin. Remember, under the law, one breach, one mistake, one sin, and it's over. Because God's anger burns against sin and in holiness so strongly. And He has sworn that sin will be punished. Jesus satisfies the anger of God that God has over anyone who accepts the salvation given to them by the Father. And so we can say we are no longer under His wrath. Romans 3.25 says it this way, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. We accept by faith that the work that Jesus Christ did satisfied God's anger. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He has passed over former sins. Looking upon us, and He sees the blood of Jesus Christ, He declares us to be at peace with Him 
And more importantly, He at peace with us. So consequently, it, it frees us or declares us free from guilt. Now, think that through for a moment. If God's no longer angry with us, there's only one reason why He could no longer be angry with us. He doesn't see us as sinful. Family, what a privilege that is. How many of you, having made some breach of sinful behavior, now become stricken? Not necessarily that you have disappointed a holy God, but now somehow God's going to get you. God says, I'm no longer angry with you. That doesn't mean He's not going to discipline us as children to correct us, that we may understand and grow within the system and the idea of holiness. But we are no longer under His anger. Any action on His part is to our benefit through His love. But we are no longer under that system by which we are guilty. God is in love with us. It's gone. The guilt is finished because we have the blood of Jesus Christ. Family, Romans 1, verse 16 and 17 tells us that salvation by grace reveals the righteousness of God to us. How many times have you ever heard someone say, well, salvation can't be true. It's too easy. Ever hear that? Alright? I've routinely heard it. Understand something for a moment. It's not too easy on God's part. It's easy on our part. Let me help you visualize. You ready? The best thing illustration that I can give you is food. Years ago, we had a chef that attended church here. And he invited a number of us over to his house. And he was going to make his world-famous cheesecake. Now again, you don't have to invite me twice in dessert. All right? So as he came, when we got there, there was just a small amount of people. And I want you to understand, the dessert was quite small. And as we talked about it, it was intricate. It was demanding. It was expensive. And then he looked to us and recognized that he had worked eight hours on the dessert that we were about to consume in a matter of minutes. You see, it wasn't easy to him. It was an act of love to invite us in to share with something that he had worked all day on. You see, that's the work of Jesus Christ. It is too easy for you and I. But because it is so easy, it reveals the righteousness of God. What God was willing to do to declare us righteous. And in that, we see a privilege. And we recognize, as you sit here today, I'm hoping you walk out with the awareness that you really do have the pearl of great price. You do have that, that object of value and importance that is so wonderful, it is worth everything that you possess 
in order to possess it. It is a wonderful privilege. And family, to, to save time this morning, just in summary, what His baptism accomplishes and reminds us of is our transformation from old to new. Our entrance into the kingdom. The bond broke of the power of sin. And the most damning is, is the promised judgment to the rest of the world for having denied and refused the offer of salvation given to them. Family, He fulfills all righteousness having entered into the Jordan River that day. When Jesus comes up, as I told you, God does something. As He comes up from the water, He experiences three things that Jewish tradition signifies the start of God bringing all of the Old Testament promises to the end. First, the heavens are opened above Him. Mark seems to uniquely understand this because he uses the word torn open. As if like a knife or, or ripping of a cloth, the heavens itself are cut open. And so we see this idea of being torn and ripped. Isaiah in his Old Testament book will say this in chapter 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains may quake at your presence. Skipping to the end of verse 2. To make your name known to your adversaries. So when the heavens were ripped open, prophecy is fulfilled, and we have the declaration of who Jesus Christ is. The Son of God. The Messiah. To the Jewish nation and the Lord of the world. Secondly, it says the Spirit descended upon Him. Jewish thinkers mark God's effort to begin the restoration of, the Is of Israel with the filling of the Holy Spirit upon the Messiah. Now I want to tell you this, there are a number of men, and, and I would be one of them today, uh, we have no reason of knowing why a dove is selected as being symbolic of the Holy Spirit. So anything that we would make uh, really just is up to our, in some ways, our own imagination. We can remind ourselves of kindness and love. We can remind ourselves of gentleness. But let me suggest to you one. The picture of Rome and its conquering authority is symbolized by an eagle. We are symbolized by an action of far less seeming authority and power and might. Not predatory. We're symbolized by a dove. A dove that ultimately will win. Not because of its predatory might, but because it simply loves. Lastly, the heavenly voice spoke to him. Isaiah again says in chapter 42, Behold my spirit upon 
or excuse me, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Jesus is God's beloved son, whom the Old Testament promised upon the Messiah to Israel will come as God's co-ruler. So the concurrence of all of these events at the baptism signifies that Jesus Christ is the one more powerful that John is speaking of. Jesus is looking for and representing Himself as the one in which John is the herald. He sees it, he knows it, he recognizes it, and has absolute confidence because of what God has done to him. Family, I want you to notice secondly this morning, not just the commissioning of the Savior, but I want to suggest to you the conquering of Satan. Now for me, this is a very important concept. I want you to, I want you to break the idea this morning that Jesus Christ is being tempted out in the wilderness. We're going to talk through it for a moment. And certainly there's an aspect of temptation. I, I, I don't want to minimize that, but I want you to understand, uh, as we'll see in a moment, Jesus Christ is already sinless. Having the Holy Spirit didn't necessarily make Him more apt to stand up against Satan himself. I want to suggest to you, as we'll see the evidence in a minute, that Jesus Christ is going to Satan to reveal and show that Satan has no authority over him. He is the second Adam, as, Abra or as Romans tells us. But he is not coming to be tempted in the way that Adam and Eve were and did. He is coming to crush the head of Satan. And by the time this is finished, the world will be aware of the power of God, Jesus Christ will declare Himself in verse 15 with that authority. Family, this is, this is unique. See, Christ's temptation is not battling Satan as enemy versus enemy. This is victory. The cross just makes it complete. Um, those of you who have studied war, you, you know that often in a, in a, in a warfare, in a, in a long, drawn out, not only battle, but yet more importantly, the war itself. Historians will tell us that World War II was finished when two things occurred. When the, Rome, when, when the Russians stopped the Nazis in Leningrad. And when we, the Allies, crossed the English Canal at Normandy. When those two incidents occurred, Nazism, and specifically Hitler, were already finished. It was simply a mop-up campaign after that. So family, tides turn. Wars are won in those moments. And I want to suggest to you, this is that moment. Satan's back is broken here. And I believe that this is warranted for a number of reasons. First, Jesus Christ hadn't sinned yet. 
And if you think this is the only attack on Satan, you're forgetting your Scripture. And I would say that we're somewhat deceiving our own, our, our own ability to rationalize through what has been going on. Jesus is now a 30-plus year old man. You already remember one incident if you know the Christmas story. As Herod sends troops out to kill all of the babies of Bethlehem as Jesus is warned and he escapes into the night to go to Egypt. Family, we have the, the first, if you will, attack by Satan to stop Jesus. And yet at the same time, I want to suggest to you as he's being filled with the Spirit, he's still the Son of God. He's went through all early human experience without sin. And now, use your imaginations. Use that logic for a moment. Do you really think a 30-plus year old man hasn't dealt with anger by now? Lust? Frustration? Submission? Jealousy? Materialism? Sins that John would have described as lust of the flesh? Lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Family, this is a a seasoned man. And if you don't think that having worked all day in the hot sun as a carpenter with a crew of people didn't leave him frustrated and angry, then the temptations are already missing in your mind. He's overcome every one of the life situations that you and I would debate. I cannot imagine Christ not being victorious over these simply because there hadn't been this filling of the Holy Spirit that baptism identifies. The Spirit upon Him commissioned Him, not empowered Him to stand against Satan, but it commissioned Him for a new and heightened role. He was heading to the cross to lay claim to the prize of our redemption. The prize of His righteous, glorious right to rule heaven as the co-regent of the Father. Family, I want to remind you, 1 Timothy 2.5 reminds us of His uniqueness, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus isn't being led to be tempted. This is just our human thinking trying to grasp at the moment. We cannot escape temptation, but Jesus is offered ideas which He would weigh out and stand against. He was hardened with His resolve, certifying who He was, who commissioned Him, Who has filled Him? And what's His objective? Family, I want you to notice He also has the presence of angels. Now, I want to remind you this morning, I've heard it preached, and I'm sure you have, that He was ministered to by the angels. And I have heard it preached, almost as if He has just finished a 12-round knockout decision over Satan, as if the angels are coming in and waving a towel over him, fanning him from his heat. Someone else is coming over and and fixing the cuts 
that might have established as this 12-round knockout blow, enemy against enemy. Please understand who he is for a moment. He's God. He's God. When have the angels ever ministered to God? Because God was weak in his standing against the very ones he created. Ministering, they are worshiping. He is one. Family, I want to suggest to you, lastly, that that Jesus will be standing in charge by the time you see verse 15. He will say this, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. This paints the picture of Jesus in charge, victorious and ready for ministry. So he has absolute confidence. And as we look at the temptation, not as if Jesus is weighing his options, but is standing against Lucifer, the snake who conquered the first Adam, and as the second Adam, he will crush his head. That's the point here in this moment of time we call the temptation of Jesus. The stress is that God leads him into this event. The event is with the greatest adversary. But I want you to understand, on one level, on your and my level, nobody stands against Satan but God. So we have a very interesting picture painted for us in Jude verse 24. Let me set the stage, because it's really a very unusual explanation in the book. The Michael archangel, or the archangel Michael, and Satan are arguing over the body of Moses. It's something that's not expressed in the Old Testament at all. It is in some of the apocryphal literature that is identified as non-biblical. So how did it make it into the Bible? We have to rely on the Holy Spirit having given it to Jude as being something that actually did happen, and we can see the reality of it. So it is explained here. And apparently as they argued over this body, Michael didn't look down and say, man, I'm an archangel. I can go one-to-one with Satan. I can, I can do this in my own power. Even Michael the archangel in Jude tells us that he says, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. So if you and I, as believers this morning, want to take anything away from the contest of Jesus and Satan, it would be Jesus' reliance on His very Word as He comes back over and over again rebuking Satan with the very authority of God and His Word. And you and I can learn an incredible lesson on that. You you and I have no ability to stand up to Satan. You and I have no ability to stand against any of the enticements that Satan would have 
that sin would offer, but Scripture itself and the authority of God's Word. Jesus and Satan will be a contest that is finished and accomplished through the reliance on the Word of God. Because the one standing on the Word is the Son of God. Family, for most of us today that are in the room, you know Jesus Christ is your Savior. I want you to walk out of here today with a hopeful confidence that what you've accepted, when you've accepted the truth of salvation in Jesus Christ, is based on a truth that you can stand on. So Jesus Christ would call Himself in Matthew 7, the rock. Any other offering this morning for you and I to have confidence in will be sand that is not worthy for us to offer the foundation of our life upon. We have something in Jesus Christ that is bedrock. And so whatever we experience in life, we recognize that being on this rock, Jesus Christ, we have the ability to go through. We have the ability to stand up against the material onslaught. Forgive me for a moment, but have you really stepped back to realize how absolutely worthless the American capitalism system is to offer you and me happiness? Do you really have a better vacation with a longer RV? Forgive me, but you just got back from Mexico. I'm going and I can't wait. You know, and other than the length of stay there, does the better resort give you a better memory of where you're going to go and what you're going to experience? Materialism is not going to give us anything. We stand on the rock, Jesus Christ. Forgive me, but can you imagine? Does your health and longevity give you any more happiness than knowing that you're an eternal creature and that you have a place prepared for you for all eternity by the Savior, Jesus Christ? Do you have anything better than that? Whether you, whether you pass in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, where you get to celebrate your 100th birthday. Do we have anything better than the rock of Christ Jesus? But I also want to come back to you today, and I want to, I want to noodle into your mind just for a moment. Are you sure that you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? You see, family, this is a treasure offered to us. If, if, if I was a financial consultant today, I'd be telling you about the greatest financial opportunity that you have, and, and, and missing out on this leaves you completely empty and void. But I want you to understand spiritually that is really true. And I want to ask you this morning, I want to remind you this morning, and I even want to plead with you this morning, make certain that you do not leave the confines of this sanctuary without knowing that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. It is, the greatest, it is the greatest privilege that we can know to know that a Savior, Jesus Christ, 
accomplished all that He did to supply the righteousness of God to us as a free gift. It demands that you humble yourself. You need to understand that. You can't fix you. You have to admit that you are nothing in terms of being able to fix yourself for an eternal reality with God. You can't do it. You have today to believe that Jesus Christ is exactly who He claims to be here at the baptism and the temptation. That He really is the Son of God and He really does offer you a free gift. And that free gift is, is eternity. Is the walk with Him in this ugly world that we live in now. And then you choose to follow Him. Please understand, He wants nothing. You have nothing to offer Him. He wants everything. He is not here to be your co-pilot. He is here to be your ruler. You choose Him and you follow Him. And family, please do not leave today without certifying that you know Christ as your Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'd ask that you'd be with us today. Dear God, it wasn't a small thing as Jesus Christ waited His entire life to cross the Rubicon that took Him from Nazareth to there, waist deep in the Jordan River. But dear God in heaven, that day changed everything. That day set on a stage in motion where first the ministry and then the humiliation of Jesus Christ began so that we would know the resurrection, so that we would know that He presently is at the right hand of the Father being our mediator. And dear God in heaven, that privilege is something that we need to relish as believers. That dear God, the world wishes to crush it out of our system. The world wishes to take it out and, dear God, try to satisfy us who know the greatest privilege with the simplest of treasures. Dear God, we have the greatest treasure. May we as believers in Jesus Christ today affirm who we are and what we have. And then, dear God, may anyone who is in the hearing of Your Word today be responsible to know the offer of salvation and believe it. Dear God, may they know before they get into the car, before they walk into the hallway, that they have responded to the precious gift of the truth of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Follow us on Facebook to keep up to date with all our latest content. Thank you.